Live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 6. Hello and welcome once more to the Dark Paranormal. Firstly, as ever, a big thank you to everyone who reached out following last week's episode, The Possession of Anna Eklund. It turns out I wasn't the only one who found that episode a little bit extra disturbing than usual, and I specifically apologised to the three people who got in touch to say they'd had nightmares the evening of listening to the episode. If it's any consolation, guys, you're not alone. On today's show, we're going to take a look at something which we've never really covered before, and that's the idea that a talisman or an object can bring forth things from the paranormal realm. It's certainly a case that has its detractors, but I think, like me, you will agree that there are far too many coincidental things that take place for this to be anything other than the genuine paranormal mystery it really is. However, before we hear about this fascinating story, we need to thank our Patreon team members. This is truly a one-man operation. So if you're a fan of the show and you want to see it continue, why not go over and join our fantastic Patreon team? We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just to you. When you sign up for Patreon, not only do you support the show, but you also receive a weekly podcast for Patreons only called Dark Bites, and that runs every week of the year, even on the downtime in between seasons. Not only that, but you receive these episodes ad-free and before anyone else. So, to be a member of this wonderful group, simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal just like these wonderful new team members have. Mindy Snyder, Alexa Lemieux, Callum Webber, Sybil Gelman, Lisbeth Donerso, Laura Todd, Boogie3D, Sky, Alyssa, Ashley Russell, Thomas Mills, Ryan Graves, Thomas Washington, Carrie-Anne Harrison, General Scare, Jaden Baden, Maria Vogel, Lyric Musgrove, Karen Cassidy, Jessica Stinson, Elaine Harold, Harley Perry and Mandy Fitzgerald. Thank you so much, guys. Your support truly allows the show to continue. I hope you enjoy all the Dark Bites Patreon-only podcasts and, of course, the early releases. We're about to hear a true paranormal experience which, for me, holds far too many coincidences to simply be dismissed. So please, lower the lights, make yourself comfortable, and leave your disbelief at the door as we take a look at the Hexham Heads. It's 1904, and a cold winter's day in the town of Hexham, a picturesque northern English village on the outskirts of the Northumberland National Park, just miles from Hadrian's Wall, which signals the break between England and Scotland to the north. The grey clouds are stationary in the morning sky, as whispers spread around the classroom. Each time the teacher turns to face the blackboard, All the small heads turn and look out of the window. Someone has claimed to see the Hexham werewolf. With the exuberance of imagination that children have, 
They were quick to bring an air of the supernatural to a very real concern within the village of Hexham. You see, something was prowling through the village at night, silent and invisible, killing and feasting on the livestock, and there was a genuine fear that this thing would turn to children for its next kill. It was believed to be a large male wolf. Concern grew so much that the village of Hexham formed a wolf committee, offering five English pounds for anyone who would present the hide of the wolf. However, before anyone could claim the bounty, a wolf's carcass was found on the train tracks, cut in half by a passing train. The committee declared the terror was over, and soon the Hexham wolf removed itself from people's consciousness. However, a witness, who had saw the wolf in the wild, reviewed the pictures of the wolf killed by the train, and stated they were not one and the same. However, given the fact that the attacks had stopped, and the villagers had moved on from the fear they'd had, the committee decided to quietly document the Hexham wolf as unresolved. It's now 1971, and schoolboy brothers, Colin and Leslie Robson, are in their front garden, playing around and digging in the mud with two child-sized trowels. Hey, if we hit oil, we'll be rich, said Colin, holding onto the small trowel's handle with both hands and flicking mud into the air. I'd buy a motorbike, replied Leslie, or a big army tent. Come on, boys, it's time for dinner, called their mother from the front stoop. Coming, Mum, I just want to dig this stone out, shouted back Colin. His trowel had become jammed under something, a seemingly round stone. Forcing it up through the mud, he could see that in the hole that was now left, there was the top of a similar-looking stone. Leslie? Leslie, come and see this,' he said to his brother as he frantically dug away at the second strange-looking object. Meanwhile, Leslie had picked up the first stone and was brushing away the mud that encased it. It was about the size and rough shape of a snooker ball, a dull, greenish and slightly sparkling stone. Leslie worked away at removing the dirt and was astounded at what was uncovered. "'Colin?' Colin, it's it's got a face. No way, replied Colin, leaping to his feet to take a better look. Colin picked up the second stone and began pushing away the dirt with his thumbs. I wonder if this one does, he said. The stone seemed different to the last. More sandy, hints of yellow seemingly mixed in with it. Some more delicate brushing with his fingers later, and once more, a face was revealed. This face was decisively more feminine than the first. It looks like a witch, Leslie remarked. Boys, I won't tell you again, shouted their mother through the front window. That evening, the two boys took to their beds after placing their newly found treasure up on the bookshelf. You boys better keep it down up there, cried their father from downstairs. Both boys sat up in bed with a start. Colin reached and turned on his bedside lamp. Was that you? asked Leslie. No, Colin replied in a whisper. (gasps) 
Colin pointed to the floor. Look! There, in the dead centre of the bedroom floor, were the two carved heads, seemingly fallen from the shelf of their own accord. They must have just fell. I'll put them back, muttered Leslie, jumping out of bed. I wish those two would just settle down and go to sleep, said Barbara Robson, flicking her newspaper and swinging her feet up on the couch. They'll both be shattered in the morning, and then it'll be... The receiver of the landline, which was fixed to the wall near the kitchen, had dropped out of its holster and was swinging back and forth on its curled wire. The Robsons looked at each other. What caused that then? said Mr. Robson, standing to his feet. You probably didn't put it back when you used it last night, he said. Why is it always my fault? replied his wife, again ruffling her newspaper in a fence. Mr. Robson chuckled and replaced the handset back in its cradle. He walked back towards his seat. Well, you're the one who always... The receiver was once again dangling from its curled wire, swinging back and forth as the bewildered couple watched on. From that first night, it was as if there was an air of doom which descended onto the family home. Neither of the Robsons could put their finger on exactly what was happening, but their anxiety levels had reached breaking point seemingly overnight. Barbara Robson was tidying the boys' room the following week, moving away the toys and magazines which were scattered about the place, when her eyes were drawn to the two strange carved heads on the boys' bookshelf. She walked over and picked up what she assumed to be the female of the pair, raising it to the light to inspect its features. Holding it made her feel uneasy. It was like there were almost tiny, imperceptible pins sticking in her fingers as she held the object. Like electricity. Where on earth had these come? A loud breaking sound from downstairs made her jump, and she quickly replaced the odd object and rushed downstairs. Against the far right wall were pieces of her mother's favourite vase. The flowers which are held now thrown around the settee. She surveyed the scene, turning her head to the windowsill on the left where the flowers had been, and then tracing the path they must have taken to smash into the opposite wall. A chill ran down her spine. The vase didn't simply fall. It quite clearly had been thrown across the room with some force. Mrs. Robson cleaned up the mess, putting on the radio quite loudly in order to make her feel less afraid and to slightly normalise the scene. Once she placed the last of the fragments into the kitchen bin, she made her way back upstairs to look once more at those strange objects. As she reached the landing, she was struck by an awful stench, a mix of wet dog and urine. So much so, she began retching and retreated backwards downstairs. As she'd done so, the radio began to change stations as if someone was playing with the dial, and then she heard the power button click off and silence filled the room. Within that split second, the stench had completely disappeared, as if something had just passed through. Mrs. Robson stood frozen to the spot, her heightened senses listening out for whatever would be next.
Barbara Robson almost leapt out of her skin. Composing herself, she answered the front door to find her neighbour, Ellen Dodd, looking rather dishevelled on the doorstep. Ellen, are you okay? Please come in, said Barbara, stepping to the side to allow Ellen entry. Something's not right, Ellen began. Have, have you seen anything weird recently? Of course, Ellen had, but not one to blurt out something which made her seem mad. She replied, No, why'd you ask? Ellen fidgeted with her handbag on her lap. Something's not right, she repeated. It started the other night. Ellen went on to describe her experience in detail. One evening last week, she'd looked out and seen Barbara's sons digging in the front yard and headed off to the kitchen to make dinner for her husband and her son. Later that evening, as she and her husband were watching TV, her son came downstairs in his pyjamas. He was shaking. Ellen gripped her son at the arms. What's wrong, love? Look at you, you're shaking. The boy started crying. There's a wolf in my room, he spluttered. Mr. Dodd sighed and rose from his chair. It's just a nightmare, son. Come on, I'll take you back up. He winked at his wife and took his son's hand. As the boy turned around to join his father, Ellen had to look twice. There were dark spots on the back of his light blue pyjamas. Come back here a minute, son, she said, concerned. The boy dutifully walked back. Turn around. The boy did as commanded by his mother, and she slowly lifted up the back of his pyjama top. She covered her mouth, because right in the centre of the boy's shoulder blades was a bite mark, as if done by a wild animal. Some of the deep indents actually seeping blood. The next day, Ellen's husband was about to leave for work. No, I can't explain it, he said to Ellen as she sat at the kitchen table, staring into space. But I did check the whole house out, and there's nothing here. Plus, all the windows were definitely shut, so we're okay. He shrugged as he picked up his car keys and headed for the door. Ellen heard the car pull away and sat in the silence of her house, holding the now cold cup of tea. She shook her head in an attempt to blow away some of the cobwebs and took a deep breath. Getting the vacuum out of the cubby hole under the stairs, she made her way into the living room. Something knocked her to the floor and was pinning her shoulders to the carpet as she lay face down. She was too scared to make a sound as she heard a growl and fell fur across the back of her neck. She braced herself for the same attack that had befell her son the previous night squeezing her eyes shut tight and nothing the weight from her shoulders disappeared the growling had stopped she slowly rose to her knees and spun her head around to see who or what had just attacked her but there was nothing nothing except a foul smell like that of a wet dog Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. 
And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank accounts. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step-by-step step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now far too scared to be alone at night, whilst her husband worked night shifts, she shared a bed with her daughter. One evening, after staying up later than usual to watch a film, the pair retired to bed. The company of her daughter evidently worked, and within half an hour, Ellen had fallen asleep. The sleep, however, would be short-lived. Ellen felt a tight squeeze of her hand, still partially awake, she felt her daughter's hand in hers, squeezing it repeatedly as if to get her attention. Opening her eyes, she looked at her daughter, whose face of abject fear was noticeable even in the low light. Following her daughter's eyes to the foot of the bed, it took a few seconds for Ellen to work out exactly what she was looking at. But there, seemingly looming over her dressing table, as if looking for something, was a seven-foot-tall figure. She glanced back at her daughter, who was now almost hyperventilating, her breathing getting louder and sporadic. Ellen knew her daughter, and knew a panicked scream was rising in her chest and was about to alert this thing to their presence. The being then stood in the doorway of the bedroom. In the bleak light it now became apparent that this thing seemed to be a cross between a man and a wolf. This revelation was too much for Ellen's daughter to take and she screamed a viscerally terrified scream. The being turned at the sound and Ellen thought this was the end. However, the terrifying entity seemed disinterested in the terrified pair and instead they watched it leave the room and slowly pad down the stairs on its hind legs. After moments of silence had passed, Ellen raced to the top of the stairs and found the front door was wide open. She ran down and bolted it shut as quickly as she could. 
Barbara Robson's mouth was wide open in disbelief of the tale Ellen Dodd had just told her. Her was she, worried that her story of a vase smashing may seem far-fetched. However, the more worrying thing for Barbara was, she could tell Ellen was telling the truth. And what do you think it was looking for? Asked Barbara. I've no idea. I've just no idea, replied a deflated Ellen. Barbara did have an idea, though. She couldn't help but think that that thing was looking for those two carved faces that were now sitting on her son's bookcase. On Thursdays, due to conflicting work schedules, Leslie and Colin were given a key to let themselves in after school. They were never normally there alone longer than an hour or two, and both were under strict instructions to behave themselves. Being good kids, there was never really an issue with this. On this particular Thursday, however, Leslie and Colin burst into the living room in mid-argument. They'd fallen out on the walk home over something trivial, as siblings often do. "'Well, it takes one to know one!' yelled Colin in Leslie's face, trying to keep the argument going. Leslie, however had instantly lost all interest in the argument and instead grabbed his brother's arm by the blazer sleeve. "'What are you doing?' yelled Colin, trying to free himself. Mid-struggle, Colin looked in the direction that Leslie's frozen face was looking and stood in the archway to the kitchen. Its head grazing the peak of the arch was a huge wolf stood upright on its hind legs like a man. It growled, moving its head quickly from boy to boy. Colin, not as frozen in fear as Leslie, pushed Leslie towards the front door. Go, move, quick, now! The boy spilled out onto the street, gaining the attention of a group of three cable fitters working on a nearby cable box. Help, help! shouted Leslie. Oi, oi, what's wrong? asked the head cable man. There's something in our house and it's massive. It's like a monster. Calming the boys down, two of the men said they would return to the house with the boys to make sure it was safe for them to be in. On returning, as you could guess, the thing had gone. However, once more, a horrid stench of animal waste filled the air. Enough was enough for Barbara Robson when she heard this story. In her mind, that thing had found the heads, and it meant it was now staying until it got them. There was no way Ellen could allow this to happen, and thankfully, her husband had an idea. He'd done some research on the heads and believed them to be of some historical significance. He suggested they send them on to an expert to find out the history of the seemingly cursed objects. Unaware of where to begin, but keen to get them out of the house, the Robsons parceled up the heads and sent them to the history department of the University of Newcastle. Once the heads were gone, Barbara Robson immediately brought a priest in to bless the house, and all of the paranormal incidents dissipated overnight. The heads, however, were now winging their way from the University of Newcastle to the Southampton home of Dr. Anne Ross, an expert on Celtic deities, 
statues and items of worship. She'd been sent a photograph of the heads and believed they matched some of her samples from Celtic mythology and was therefore keen to see them in the flesh. She would very soon regret that decision. From the moment she opened the box and held the items, she described a strange coldness seemingly seeping from them into her hands. Packing them away for a future in-depth study, Dr. Ross carried on with her daily work when she ran into the living room and found two antique plates had fallen from their position on the shelf to the floor. But what she couldn't work out is how the fragments had landed across the other side of the room. It was as if they'd been thrown. This, however, would be the least of her concerns. Two evenings later, Anne Ross lay in bed around 2am. She just couldn't sleep and was tossing and turning, but it was no use. She sighed and closed her eyes for the umpteenth time. Something was in the room with her. She could feel its presence. She opened her eyes very slowly and there in the doorway was a wolf-type creature. Her actual quote on the sighting goes like this. It was over six feet high, slightly stooping, and it was black against the white door. It was half animal, half man. The upper part a wolf, the lower seemingly human. I would have said it was covered with a kind of black fur. It walked out of the room and it disappeared. Something made me run after it, a thing I would never normally have done. I heard it going down the stairs and then it disappeared towards the back of the house. Dr. Ross's daughter, Bernice, decided one weekend to call in at her parents' house. However, as they were unaware of her impending visit, they went out for the day, meaning Bernice would be greeted by the large, empty house. Bernice noted the lack of cars in the drive and put two and two together. However, as she had made the journey, she decided she would at least stop for a cup of tea. Plus, she had some gifts to drop off. To double-check she was indeed entering an empty building, Bernice shouted the obligatory, Hello, anyone home? As she walked into the hallway and removed her coat. Turning with her back to the stairway to hang her coat on the hook, Bernice froze. She slowly turned around and there, stood looking down at her from the landing, was what appeared to be a seven-foot-tall wolf standing on its hind legs, its red eyes glaring at her intently. There was a tense standoff, but suddenly the wolf creature stopped growling. Bernice could hear her heart beating. The thing ran down the stairs towards her, however, halfway down it vaulted the banister and she heard its padded feet land in the hallway in front of her. She frantically turned to try and open the front door. As she fell through the door onto the path outside, she spun around, but the creature had disappeared. Once more, all that remained was the foul stench of an unclean animal. Dr. Ross and her husband, arriving home to find the deeply distressed Bernice, decided the Hexham heads had to go. And so she passed them on to a known paranormal researcher, Frank Hyde. 
Hyde stated he would carry out a series of experiments on the heads to see what he could uncover. However, we will never know just what he found out. You see, Frank Hyde and the Hexham heads disappeared in the month following him receiving them from Dr. Ross. To this day, no one knows the whereabouts of those mysterious items or the whereabouts of the final owner of the infamous Hexham Heads. This whole experience fascinates me for the simple reason I've never encountered a paranormal experience where a seemingly mythical entity is apparently called forth by some sort of talisman. However, in this instance, it would appear that whoever had possession of the item would soon encounter this wolf-like creature seemingly with supernatural abilities. For full disclosure, we must state that during the unfolding of this mystery and the newspaper headlines it generated, a truck driver named Desmond Craigie claimed to have lived in the house prior to the Robson family and claims to have carved the heads and buried them for his daughter to find and play with. However, given the money involved in newspaper interviews at the time, I personally find his story less convincing than the one we've just covered. For me, the most interesting part of the entire experience is that of Dr. Ross. Dr. Anne Ross is a published author on the topic of Celtic statues. Now, when she took receipt of the Hexham heads, she had no idea about the wolf-like entity that had been experienced by the Dodd family who lived next door to the Robsons. Once more, she did not pass on that information to her daughter, Bernice, who turned up and witnessed yet again a seven-foot wolf-like creature. The chances of three separate individuals all coming up with a fake story that they encountered a giant wolf seems almost impossible. It's also exceptionally intriguing how, according to Ellen Dodd's recollection of events, the being was seemingly looking for something. Something that we can only assume was the Hexham heads. And then, of course, we have Frank Hyde, the final owner of the Hexham heads. Was he just an eccentric who withdrew from society? Or perhaps his run-in with the entity didn't end so well? Whatever the truth behind the story, one fact remains, and that's that the Hexham heads are out there somewhere. So if you have a pet dog or a small child playing in the yard and they come in holding two strange objects, maybe give them the once-over before you allow them in the house. Thank you so much for once again choosing to spend your time with me here on The Dark Paranormal. I'll speak to you next time, and remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave your disbelief at the door, and I'll see you next time on The Dark Paranormal.